Hi, Joel and Suzanne. Hi, my name is Art Wimberly. Hi, my name is Lauren. Hey, Suzanne, my name is Brad. Hi, Suzanne, my name is Chelsea. Hi, my name is Mark. Hi, my name is Sarah. Hi, my name is Nicole. Hi, my name is Rachel. And hi, this is Joel from LTM, and you are listening to episode 80 of the Enneagram Journey podcast with the Enneagram godmother, Suzanne Stabile. As you can already tell, it's going to be a Q&A episode, which everyone loves. Fours and nines are going to get a lot of airtime. Suzanne is going to talk about morning pages, anger issues, totems, and there's a really great conversation for stay-at-home parents. I believe it's during that conversation that you're going to hear Lindsay pipe in, who is an Anagram 6. There's one correction that I caught, and you might catch others, but uh, when Suzanne is talking about the lost and unconscious childhood messages for nines, she leaves out the word not in the unconscious childhood message. So, she says, it is okay to assert yourselves. When the unconscious childhood message for nines is actually, it is not okay to assert yourself. The final question in today's episode has to do with relationships in the Enneagram, and she does a great job of answering it, but if you want to hear her expound more on that topic, then sign up today for her Relationships Workshop. She's got two coming up, one in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on March 27th and 28th, And if that's not anywhere close to you, then you can see her in April on the 24th and 25th, share her Enneagram and Relationships Workshop in Little Rock, Arkansas. And you can sign up for both of those or one of them at lifeinthetrinityministry.com. And now let's get to our first question from Lauren. Hi, my name is Lauren and I'm dialing in from Sydney, Australia. My What I want, would like to learn more about is how Enneagram, I guess, can intersect or help us understand mental health disorders more. So I'm a four in the Enneagram, and I also have a diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder. And whilst my, how my brain and anxiety works is very similar to the standard criteria, I know it manifests in ways quite suited to my number, such as worthiness and relationships. Is there a way that we can use the Enneagram to, I guess, look after ourselves more in terms of mental health? For example, as a four, there's certain strategies that rather than the general strategies I could use to help me manage my anxiety. And could you just talk about, I guess, this overlap of mental health and Enneagram more generally? Thank you. Thank you, Lauren. I would uh, start by saying that's a really brave question, and it's a smart question, because you're talking about trying to use two things that help you explain you and put them together in a way that is productive and helpful. So let me start by saying that I think in fourness, there are some basic things that every four can do that will make life better. One is... Um, four's desire to feel important and seen and understood often means that they differentiate themselves unnecessarily when they're in a group or in a conversation with someone else. And I would encourage you to be careful about finding your place with differentiation and instead find your place with uniqueness and your unique gifts. 
that way you're creating a place to stand or to be known that isn't necessarily different from everybody else. It's your unique expression of that. In terms of mental health, I would say that I'm very careful to not talk about the Enneagram in terms of pathology. But I do think there are some connections between anxiety and being a four. In relationship between fourness and anxiety, I would suggest that we talk a little bit about your move to two in stress. You know, any move on the Enneagram is helpful. And so um, you have to look for sometimes how that move is helpful to you. And when you um, are in the low side of four, you tend to not think highly of yourself and believe that you're flawed in some significant way. And you also tend to focus on what's missing in you that you think other people have. And when you are stressed and you go to two, on the high side of two, what you can recognize, or the healthy side of two, what you can recognize is that there are a lot of connections between you and other people when you move toward others. Your orientation is inside yourself, and a two's orientation is outside of themselves. They're focused outside and on other people. And you take on that behavior when you have some two behavior available to you. And when you connect with other people, it alleviates some, certainly not all, of your anxiety about loneliness and difference and fragmentation and separation. I think those things are a lot to work on. It sounds like just one or two thoughts, but to work on those two things takes a lot of time and a lot of energy, so be really nice to yourself. And the final thing I would suggest to you in terms of self-care is this. There are no humans who are created deeply flawed. So the idea that there's something wrong with you is uh, an idea you have to spend probably a lot of adulthood trying to let go of. Because you are wonderfully made and interesting and smart, and you have a lot to offer. You just need to focus on what you have to offer instead of focusing on what's missing. We're going to stay in the same vein. Uh, We've got several other questions that came in about fours. Okay. Questions from fours about fourness. One actually is from a two, but you talked about the movement and stress and security there. Yeah. And it was a long question. So basically this person said was they were looking for help so that they could move to from as a two move to four more often and how to stay in four. Sometimes I read and I was like, if what do I think the answer is? And so what I thought you might say is that you don't, that you're a two is the goal to be the best two, not to spend more time in four. You're, a person's not a four if they're a two. Is that is that right? That's exactly right. It makes me so happy to know that when I'm teaching, you're listening. You know, some of the time. Yeah. Taking I'm it listening. all in. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> here's what I would suggest. You don't ever become the number that you share a line with on the Enneagram. You don't become 
one of your wings, if you have a really big wing, you don't become the number you go to in stress and you don't become the number that you go to in security. And what you want to do is when you are intuitively or organically as a two, finding yourself secure enough that you're in four space, what you want to do is be mindful of what you learn from that and bring it back with you. So essentially you go to four, you behave differently and you recognize it. It's helpful. And you want to bring back something with you. So one of the things that as a two I've gained from time that I've been in four is the value of me focusing on what's inside of me in terms of all kinds of things, answers to questions, material for writing a book, responses to my own life. And prior to understanding the Enneagram, I don't think I knew intuitively to look inside of me for answers. I think I had a tendency to always look to other people for answers. I know for me, if I were to choose, I like seven. Yeah, I mean, you do. When it's when seven's it's like right, their yeah. numbers, yeah. Yeah. When it's going right. I I don't like it when it's not going right for yeah. me. When when the seven is when the personality's in charge. Yeah. That, that's not good. That's a bummer. But uh whenever I do the movement to one in stress, yeah. I like being a better one. And then same with five. I do understand like there is a level of you know, going to the high side or low side. Yeah. But neither one I wanna stay there. It's I don't wanna like when you joke you say playfully the story of you wanting to wake up and you'll be a nine now. Yeah, I might be a nine tomorrow. And it's like, it's just, you know, and what is by the time you had coffee, the nineness was. Oh, yeah, nine. no. Uh, three, three sentences, Dad said. Three <laughs> sentences. I think, too, th- that the desire to be another number means that you don't yet know the value of who you are and the personality that fits you. Mm-hmm. Like you, you can't be me you can't be a two and I can't be a seven but we can both be healthier in the number that we are and we challenge each other to that one of the things I think has helped is that golly our whole family has known the Enneagram for such a long time that we challenge each other to be the best in our number we can be sometimes and in a appropriate way sometimes and with humor sometimes I think the other side of that is true as well. I think that we see the gifts that the other people have, right? And then try to try to bring some of that to the table. Um, the other personalities, yeah, absolutely. So like it might not be natural, but yeah. I see how great it is in you. This and maybe I can work on doing doing that some of the time. Sure. There's no way. Um, there is no way that we could do my schedule if I didn't learn from eight and bring back the ability to have some boundaries and be able to say no, and we just couldn't do what we do. Mm-hmm. So I've got another question here. This one was written in, and I can't really abbreviate this one. So, hi, Suzanne. I'm a type four who's been practicing morning pages on and off for about a year but I'm having a hard time telling if they're helping me be more self-aware or just making me more in my feelings than necessary since my pages often turn into complaining and negative overthinking. 
On days I do them, often I feel more negative after I write them. On days I don't do them and focus on working or being productive instead, I feel more in the flow of life. I have heard you speak of the benefits of morning pages specifically for type 1s. Do you think for type 4s they actually could be a crutch and a way to stay in our feelings too much? I would love to hear your thoughts. That's a great question. Morning pages are, from my perspective, for emptying the trash. So the reason I suggest that we in Enneagram work use Julia Cameron's idea, which was for folks who are creative. And I took that and thought we could do morning pages each in our number when we're so in personality that we can't let it go. So when I teach about morning pages for any number, the goal is to be able to get rid of what you're carrying that is unnecessary that you wake up with. So an example I often use is that when I'm worried about one of my children or one of their spouses or one of my grandchildren or Joe, I tend to just play that over and over and over. And in those times, morning pages keeps me from carrying the stuff that I make up. And so I write morning pages and I throw them in the trash. I don't do morning pages all the time. And I don't think you should do morning pages all the time. They're not working for you. Don't do it. But be sure when you choose to do morning pages that you throw them away. The goal is to rid yourself of what's in the morning pages, not to catalog it and carry it with you. So that'll be the measure for whether or not you need to do morning pages or some other practice. And since they're not working for you and you're a four, one of the things that I would encourage you to do is find a daily practice that focuses on someone else, somebody else's writing, somebody who is not you and who doesn't think exactly like you do. And that'll help you, I think. And, of course, there are a myriad of practices. Joe and I taught together for a day, and spiritual practices is really his forte and not mine. And that is uh, an available product from LTM, and it's titled The Enneagram and Spiritual Practices. And you might want to give that some attention. And if you haven't heard the first hour of that, that's podcast episode 50. No, I bet it's like 62. I think 50 is orientation to time. But it says spiritual practices on it. So give that a listen. Hi, my name is Sarah. I'm, I identify as a type 9 on the Enneagram. And my question is about anger and asserting oneself as a type nine as we do this Enneagram um, growth. Since I've discovered the Enneagram, I feel like it's enhanced my life in so many ways and really helped my development. And at the same time, I feel like it's really um, been pretty uncomfortable to recognize anger that has been below the surface for so many years. So my question is... For type nines, how do you grow in the ability to hold the space of anger 
put it out there, not just keep it inside of oneself, but without quite such an edge. I think what I'm noticing is that now that I'm aware of anger, sometimes it comes out pretty sideways. And I know that's okay in theory, (laughs) Um, but it's also just so uncomfortable and it feels like I'm having more conflict than ever, which is pretty hard for a type nine. So that's my question. Nine, anger. How do you take the edge off it? How do you grow in this ability to express anger? Hi, Sarah. That's a great question. It's a lot of questions, but it's it's really good. So let me see if I can unpack that a little for you. Uh, let's start with that um, when you've carried anger that hasn't been expressed, it builds up. And so the first thing you want to do is be sure that when you express anger, it's about what's happening in real time, not about something that happened before. You don't, you don't get to effectively use anger appropriately, bringing things from the past. So your orientation to time is the past. And sometimes it's difficult to just keep your emotions boundaried in what's happening in real time. So work on that. Second thing is when you start to do anything in an upfront way that you have done in a more roundabout way. So for example, I'm trying really hard as a two to ask for what I want instead of trying to get my needs met in a roundabout way. Let me just give you a basic example. Instead of saying, I sure am thirsty, if I want somebody to offer me something to drink, I'm trying to ask for something to drink. But when I first started to try to do that, it came out kind of weird or sideways. or, And I think that's because I wasn't practiced at it. And I'm not great yet, but I'm getting better. Why don't I have water? <laughs> I hope I didn't say that. <laughs> I might have, but I hope I didn't. <laughs> So what I'm suggesting for you is that you're not good at expressing anger in real time yet, so it comes out sideways, because you haven't practiced. So you may need to do some apologizing around how you express your anger for a while or maybe forever. You're less likely to need to do that if you don't let it build up and if you don't connect it to things that aren't happening in real time. And the last thing I would say is that you could really do some good work around evaluating whether or not passive, aggressive representations of anger gets you anywhere. I feel like there's a dissatisfaction that goes with that. Now, the reason that nines don't say what they want, don't say what they think, and aren't honest in their expressions of anger is because of their great concern about fragmentation in relationships. And relationships that matter, you can fix. So just work to also do that in real time. And let me suggest to you that you do some work with your childhood messages. Rizzo and Hudson teach that we all have two childhood messages. One is unconscious and one is lost. And the lost message for nines is that your presence matters. And the unconscious message for nines is that it's okay to assert yourself. 
So I would suggest that if you assert yourself earlier, it will come with less anger. And in order to do that, you have to do some work around believing and understanding that your presence matters. And I think if you work with that whole package, you'll be um, more comfortable with expressions of anger that are valid without the fear that comes with concern about fragmentation. I hope so. Hope that works. And we're going to stick with nines here. We've got a couple more questions written in. All right, so this one is from Morgan. Uh, She says, I'm an Enneagram 9 and a mom to a good-spirited 18-month-old little boy who is both emotionally and physically intense. We're together pretty much all day, every day. Working with the physical intensity comes naturally to me, but I'm struggling daily with his emotional ups and downs and, quite frankly, his stubbornness. I'm wondering if this is because his emotions are causing turmoil with my sense of peace, considering his dependence on me. I'm married and have close friendships, but I've not experienced this before in a relationship. Do you have any practical or spiritual suggestions to help? Before we get to your practical and spiritual suggestions, (laughs) Misery Loves Company. Yeah. So I want a story about, I've got a 17-month-old daughter. and She's adorable. Yeah, she's super great. And this morning at, I don't know, 6 a.m., cry from the other room. I go get her. I'm, I, I was getting up anyway, time to get ready, get the kids ready. And uh, so I just lay her on my bed. And she just starts, like, crying and yelling, but she still hasn't opened her eyes. And I'm like, hey, just open your eyes. And you can open your eyes. You'll realize that everything, open your eyes. So then she starts, she's not opened her eyes. Pushing herself off the bed the long way. So now she's going the length of the bed, still doing this weird noise of yelling and crying. Eyes won't open. Push herself all the way off to the bed, off the bed, onto the trunk, all the way off the trunk, onto the ground before opening her eyes. And looked around and I was like, that, when I was reading the question, I'm like, that's stubbornness in a 18 month old. Like, open your damn eyes. Exactly. All right, now to the spiritual part. so help help me and morgan please all right i'm going to help you both so here's what we need to talk about first of all morgan nines are the most stubborn number on the enneagram so when you're trying to out stubborn an 18 month old you're going to lose that i'm sorry but you're going to lose because 18 month olds can outlast any adult, any day, with any mood. So give up your own stubbornness. So what you need to do is take advantage of the time when your little boy is asleep or when he's happy to rest and do things that you love to do, not taking advantage of that time to try to get stuff done. And you're doing repressed, so I know that trying to get stuff done is probably high on your list. But you need to be busy trying to get stuff done when he's busy trying to keep you from getting stuff done. And if you find some space for yourself, then you'll have a lot more patience with his needs. I'm going to just reiterate for you and Joel, you also are very stubborn when it comes to 
lots of things, you're going to lose. It's hard to, it's hard to look at one of my children and think, well, I guess, I guess I'm not in charge. That's right. Like I don't, that's a tough world to live in. Well, it's the real world. I've waited all my life to grow up and then have orange rolls. Yeah. Because the reverend always got the middle orange roll. (laughs) And I was like, when I'm an adult uh-huh. and I have a family, I will get I the get middle it. orange roll. I, I don't command the same respect that he did. So uh-huh. I, I did not get the middle orange roll this morning. And <laughs> and it was just a bad morning this is all a rough around. Morning, yeah. Yeah. I, I've had a hard day today. <laughs> it wasn't even Josie who took the middle orange roll. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Who's, who snuck it? Oh, my it? gosh. I don't, I don't think anyone snuck it. Somebody just took proudly it, yeah. took it. Yep. Sticking with nines, we've got another question. I'm a nine on the Enneagram, one-to-one, I think. Uh, Since discovering the Enneagram and learning about nines, it has really helped me make sense of who I am, my past, and thinking habits. I have always struggled with lack of motivation and ambition, specifically when it comes to pursuing my desires, both big and small. For the most part, I'm happy making sure the ones I love are happy. How can the Enneagram help me not stay stuck in my slothfulness? Okay, well, let's talk about sloth first. Sloth is a desire to be unaffected by life. So the first thing you have to do is be present to your own life. And that's not easy to learn, but you have to work at that. If you've never heard me talk about the four mantras, I talk about them a good bit. And they're particularly a good response to your question. The four mantras are show up, pay attention, tell the truth, and don't get attached to the results. And the results for you are always ideas around and feelings of peace and connection. But sometimes really good things come from a lack of peace. One of the things that I would suggest is that believing that your presence doesn't matter and it's not okay for you to assert yourself, means that you stay stuck. It means that you stay in a place where you don't use the energy that you have to join in what's happening, when you don't use your energy for participation. So be very careful about watching yourself because you generally will find, I think, that you observe more than you participate. And it's like building a muscle. The more you participate, the more you'll want to participate. And the more you'll want to be involved, and the more you'll be affected by life. And then it becomes one thing feeding on another, feeding on another in a circuitous way so that you gradually become more fully engaged with life. And I I've seen that work for lots and lots of nines. I think it'll work for you. I read here where she says, for the most part, I'm happy making sure the ones I love are happy. Is that other reference? Is that nines being other reference? In part, that's nines being other reference, but also in part, that's just protecting peace. It's like, I would rather you be happy than me lose my peace as a nine. Okay, and that, that's easy for me to follow up now with this. Uh, people have heard you say, and Joe, that y'all, as, y'all are both other referenced. Mm-hmm. Are all twos and all nines other referenced? Yes. Okay. 
Can you talk to that a little bit? People, sure. people have asked, what does that mean? Yep. So being other referenced means that your agenda comes from outside of you. It means that if you have something that you have to get done today or you feel like your life will be better if you do, but somebody else that you care about or that you don't want disagreement with wants you to adopt a part of their agenda, then you do that because your reference point is the other person. So other reference means that your reference point is the other person. Often I talk about it in dad and me because we're both in ministry and we're both other referenced. And so we were warned early on that we needed to be very, very careful that we took good care of ourselves and each other and our children and our family before we let other people's needs and desires take place of any of that. And I think we've done a pretty good job but I think we did it because we were warned about it. Mm-hmm. I think somebody taught us early on, you you need to have these priorities. And if you don't have them, then you're going to spend your life doing whatever somebody else wants you to do. Somebody that you may never see again or somebody that you're in relationship with that's casual and not primary in your life. So you said that nines are other reference mm-hmm. and twos are other reference. Mm-hmm. What other Enneagram numbers are other referenced? Because I used to think that when I've heard you say other referenced before, mm-hmm. I thought that was like introvert, extrovert. You yep. know, people are. Yeah, no. Okay. So I actually don't think there are other numbers that are other referenced, but there are two other numbers that look like that. And they're the other two numbers that are in the dependent stance with twos. So ones, twos, and sixes are dependent numbers. And that means that they depend on others' responses to them as they're making their way through life. That's different, though, than being other referenced. Mm -hmm. It's equally complex in terms of maintaining appropriate priorities for your life. And it's equally challenging in terms of honoring your own schedule and agenda but it comes from a different place than putting another person's desires before your own. And twos and nines do that. So we, we started this whole line of questioning uh, from Sarah, who had the question about nines and anger. Right. So now I've got another question here that's about anger, but not from a nine, I don't believe. How do I process anger that I feel over an injustice issue in our church? We have an antagonist and a narcissist who has been a real problem for over three years. At one point, our leadership was prepared to ask him to leave, but now they seem to want to work with him. Um, He has no self-awareness, other stuff. Uh, He has hurt me as a woman pastor, um, also caused damage to our senior pastor, more things along that line. My question is, how do I process this deep anger over what I see as a clear right and wrong issue? My outrage over this injustice causes me to lose sleep. How do I see a third way out of this as an Enneagram one? That's a hard situation to be in, and that's a hard question to answer. I'm a pastor's wife, as you probably know, so I've experienced that kind of pain, and I'm aware of that kind of injustice. So the first thing I want to do is recommend a book to you, 
And I would recommend that you buy several copies and share them with your church leadership. And the title of the book is Antagonists in the Church, and it's by Kenneth Hawk, but it's spelled H-A-U-G-K. Antagonist in the Church by Kenneth H-A-U-G-K. And now I'm going to tell you a story, but don't get mad at me because I'm going to come back and talk after I tell you the story. There's a wonderful man whose name is Gurdjieff, who is the modern grandfather of the Enneagram. And in the 1940s, he had a house in Europe where people came to study spiritual practices and they lived there while they were learning and practicing different spiritual practices. And there was somebody, and they paid to be there, and there was somebody in the house at one point who nobody liked and nobody could get along with. And ultimately, that guy left. And the people who were paying to be there to do these spiritual practices and live in community for, a, I don't know, two or three months were so glad that he was gone. But Gurdjieff left the house and followed him until he found him and talked him into coming back. And rather than the man having to pay to come back, Gurdjieff paid him to come back. And the other people in the house confronted Gurdjieff and said, why'd you do this? And he said, because there are things we need to learn from him that we cannot learn if he's not here. So I think you have to keep in mind that Every situation has something to teach us, and that not every situation is just. And as a one, you have, along with eights and nines, a particular sensitivity to injustice and a particular desire to address it. I don't think there's one right way for you to address the problem that you're faced with. I don't think it would be helpful for me to talk to you about my own pain and the pain in our family from church antagonists, and we have had that. I'm not sure if your antagonist is there for you to learn something that only having him in your community can teach you, or if you need to find a way along with other leaders in your church to encourage a change. What I do know is this. Once you, and I know this as a pastor's wife, not a pastor, but as a pastor's wife, once you start focusing on protecting yourself and the anger you feel at the injustice and the confusion you have about what is an appropriate Christ-like Christian response to somebody who's behaving so badly and to someone who is affecting my life, your life, I think it's just a really, really hard place to be. And I'm going to refer back to the book because it is really full of wisdom that will really be helpful to you. And the final thing I want to suggest is that I think you're going to have to pray for the antagonist. And I know how hard that is too. But be careful that you pray earnestly for a change of heart for the antagonist and not end up turning the prayers 
toward things that have more to do with you and how you've been hurt. And all of those things together have a chance, I believe, and I'm sorry you're having to go through it because it's so hard. All right, here's another one. Hi, I love your podcast and learn so much from each new episode. Uh, in a recent podcast, you spoke with Craig Nash, Type 6, and what you said about his perfect alignment between employment and type struck me. Um, what can you tell me about my type and chosen occupation as a mom, a stay-at-home mom? What can I do as a four to enhance my energy for the routine demanding daily to-dos? Thank you. So Craig Nash is a six who works at a really cool, do you remember? I'm sure you do remember. Yeah. What was his? Well, he essentially provides food yeah. for folks. And his whole focus is on thinking through how to take care of the common good by doing things structurally and systematically that helps feed people who are hungry. And it just uses all of his gifts. Right. You know, it's one of those things you say, anybody can have any job, yeah. any number. And but, some jobs are just right in the wheelhouse for... Right. And, and his is. I think a big part of the success of any of us working at our jobs is that we're motivated to do that work for one reason or another. And I think motivation counts for more than we give it consideration. So, for example, people want the Enneagram to be about behavior, but it's not. It's about your numbers determined by your motivation for your behavior. And I think how motivated you are determines how much energy you have for what you do. And I think the amount of energy that you have for what you do determines how you feel about having done it. What's the saying? The cure for... Uh-huh. That's it exactly. So uh, according to a conversation between David White and Brother David Stendelrast, the antidote for exhaustion is not rest, it's wholeheartedness. And so if we put all that in the mix and you have chosen to be a stay-at-home mom as a four, then you must have motivation for wanting to do the routine life of a stay-at-home mom. You're motivated to do that for your children and for your family, and that is what keeps you in the pattern of living that commitment. The best way I can talk to you about what you're experiencing and tell you that it's okay is to talk to you about what we experience sometimes. So people will say to me, gosh, it's so cool that you get to travel. Well, golly, Joel, I don't know how many cities we've been in, but we don't get to see the city usually. If I have more than one person traveling with me, then you usually go do a sports thing in that city if the team's in town and all that works. But for me, I get on an airplane, I go to a hotel, I go to a venue, I teach, I go back to the hotel, I get on an airplane and I come home. And that's tedious. And I love what I do. And I would just suggest that my moments of teaching in 
the context of a whole trip are like your moments where you know that your parenting really matters. And then there's the rest of the stuff where you know that being home really matters or where you have a really poignant moment with one of your children. And then there's the rest of the stuff. And I think there's the rest of the stuff for all of us all the time. And we have to learn as so many great spiritual teachers have taught that there is a spirituality about the rest of the stuff and health in our number means that we can know our value when we're doing the rest of the stuff. One of the things you, when you were talking about motivation and what the Enneagram is, what I would dream for is for the world to know that if the question starts with, do you X, Y, and Z, that's not an Enneagram question. Why do you X, Y, and Z is an, is an Enneagram question. That's right. And when you got back to the motivation and wholeheartedness, and so she's a, a four mother staying at home, and she there's a reason why she's doing it. That's right. And for you, the travel you are not big on the traveling, but you are big on the work. I am. And you're big on the people. And so whenever we're somewhere and you are a little down or a little tired, it's easy. Well, I, I just go to that well of, man, there are 300 people that are jacked to hear you that have traveled from God knows where and have spent this money and you're going to, you will help them. That's that, it. That gives you some gusto. And for me, because I, I'm not a four and Lindsay, I'd be curious to hear kind of what is tedious for you, uh, but we're both parents and I love my kids and there are a lot of things as a parent I don't want to do. And as a, as a homeowner and stuff like that, that are tedious. But the catch for me is looking at, Oh my gosh, I love my kids That's right. and I love my wife. And then that's the, for me immediately, the motivation that gives me the energy to do the things I don't want to do all of that to get to, I haven't heard you. I didn't hear you say this totems because like I I've got, I like tattoos. And so I don't know how you feel about tattoos. Uh, but I've got all my kids names really big tattooed on my forearms and my wife's. And that's a day. It's when I need a reminder, I don't have to just look down. That's right. And, and I think, it's probably kind of important for me to say at this point, as I lead into talking about totems, that I stayed home for a lot of years. I had a career as a social worker, and um, when Joe and I married and he adopted the three children and we had a fourth, in the United Methodist Church, you're only appointed for a year at a time to a church, and we moved five times in eight years. Now, after those eight years, we've been nine years in one church and 12 years in another, and Dad will finish his career in the one he's in now, and he's in his fourth year there. But in those years when we were moving, it wasn't possible for me to have a career, and it certainly wasn't possible for me to travel or any of that. So I was motivated to love him and all of you well, and God is faithful, (laughs) And after those years, then my opportunities to do the things I do now came to me. 
I didn't go out seeking them. And opportunities will come to you as a four. And Lindsay and Joel, you'll have more and more freedom when your kids are older. And you have the opportunity right now to work a job that has flexible hours so that you can do this and be with your children, which is part of the design that Joe and I have for trying to assure that we have younger people working with us because we need that and Life in the Training Ministries needs that. And you can't necessarily have that unless you're going to have some flexibility around employees being able to be good parents to their children. And I know we have a sweet spot, but I think more people could have it than do. Two things that came from that is one, that nothing's locked in for forever. Right. I think that we can all get lost in, this is the rest of my life. That's right. Is doing these tedious things with these boys who sometimes are monsters. Yeah. You know, I mean. Well, and they're boys. Boys take longer to thank you for anything than girls do. So I don't know how old her boys are, but I'm telling you, it it's just happening. And there are really tedious parts of, especially of what the two of you do here at the center. You know, making CDs, which is what Lindsay's doing today, and y'all have been mailing stuff for days. It feels like doing a tedious job over and over and over to try to do a good job serving the people who want access to our work. And I I just think there's part of that to everything. And I think stay-at-home parents think that people who are not at home have a much more glamorous life than they have, just as people think that our traveling is much more glamorous than it is. And just as people who are not stay-at-home parents think that being a stay-at-home parent is much more glamorous, glamorous than, than it is. is. Exactly. Oh, you, to, you, you have a foot in both yeah. pools. Yeah, I stayed at home exclusively for eight years, and then now I'm working part-time. So now I'm doing a little of both. Um, and I do recognize that that is something that a lot of people don't get to do, both of those things. Um, but I think for me, the... Um, just the guilt attached to it is the hardest thing, whatever you're doing. And I know, I don't know how it is for dads. I know for moms, I think whatever you're doing, you feel like you ought to be doing more of the other thing. And so when I'm at home, I really struggle to be, I can't be engaged with my young children a hundred percent of the time right? or even 80% of the time. And so I feel when I'm with them, I feel bad that I'm not more engaged because I want to be doing something more intellectually stimulating. Sure. And then when I'm away from them, you know, it's, it's the opposite. So I think allowing yourself to recognize like that you are an adult with needs doesn't make you a bad parent um, is really helpful to me and, and that those are valid needs and you can try to find creative ways to get them met while you're still being at home with your kids. And I'm going to get to totems. I am, but I want to say one more thing more in my generation than yours, but there is certainly been a lot of talk. There has been a lot of talk about the value of being a stay-at-home parent or mom, mom, it's moms, Mm -hmm. a stay-at-home mom or a working mom. And I'm 69. And when women my age started working full-time, which was counter to what our mothers had done for the most part, There was a lot of conversation about which is best and which is selfish and which isn't and all of that. 
And I, I think we need to just put on the table that what's best is what you believe is yours to do. And that's not the same for any two people. And because of technology, there's an opportunity now to do both or to have some shared jobs or some part-time jobs. There's just more creativity around all of that, which I think is great. And I just want to make sure that nothing we say sounds like it admires one over the other. Right. Because it's all individual choice and priority and call. And nobody can judge that in anybody else's life. Now to totems. When my children were young and I was bored, I did a whole wall in one hallway of art and cards and gifts that they had made for me. And I framed them in very inexpensive black frames. And they were the whole hall in the parsonage. And I would walk by those things and touch them and remember what I was doing and why I was doing it. Or I would take the little ones that were still home and a picnic basket to the church to have a picnic with Dad because I could to remember why I was doing that. And my kids now range in age from 31 to 41, and everything they ever made for me is out and on display in our home. And those are all my totems for why I do what I do and for why I did what I did and made the choices that I made. And I think Joel's exactly right. If you don't have some reminders around you, then all you see is tennis shoes, dirty clothes, dirty dishes, a grocery list, and stuff to do like that. And I I just think it, when it's what is yours to do, it's all so valuable. But without reminders, it sure seems tedious. And I think we should use the word tedious instead of boring when we can. Mm-hmm. I just want to throw out one last thing. Needing a reminder, there doesn't need to be any guilt around that. No. We have to make a distinction between needs and wants. And I think we don't do that either. Those two words get interchanged. And we think we need things that we only want. And I I've, I just think there's, this is interesting to me how much conversation this question sparked that is Enneagram-centered but not number-centered. Because knowing the Enneagram helps you distinguish between needs and wants. Mm -hmm. And knowing orientation to time helps you manage what stage you are in life. And it all works for good the more you know about the Enneagram. The more you know. So as a four, her orientation to time is the past. So all she's thinking about is, I did this yesterday. Or life before those two angels came into her life. That could be. Yeah, that could be. (laughs) Depending on how how far back she wants to go. Yeah, I'm just really grateful for the question because it took us down lots of trails we wouldn't have gone down, and I think they're all valuable. 
And I just want to say everybody's totems will be different mm-hmm. too. Tattoos wouldn't work for me. And my little treasures do because I'm a very visual person. And other things work for other folks. So, I yeah, I'm all about totems. All about it. Hi, I just got done listening to episode 59 on repressed centers. I really resonated with um, your suggestions for ones, um, for things they can do to practically help them bring up the repressed center. This is probably the fifth time that I have recorded this question because, of course, I want it to be perfect. <laughs> um, uh, my question is about prayer beads. Um I come from a Christian background where that is not used in any way, and so they're completely new to me. I've done some research, found several different types, several different ways of using them. Just, um, I'm just wondering what ways you would suggest using them in a way that would be helpful um, in bringing up repressed thinking. Um, also, what you said about ones and their inner critic, it was the first time it really clicked for me. Um, and I, and I realized exactly who it was and, and these conversations that I have with myself, these arguments I have, um, they often have the face of a family member or a friend. And I think I'm working out ideas, but in fact, I'm just, um, arguing with my inner critic and now I just need to name her and give my poor friends and family members a break in my head. Um, thank you for the work you're doing. Hi, Mary. Prayer beads um, have been available, not in every denomination, but in every faith belief for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And I want to teach you a little something about outcome and prayer beads, and then I'll suggest beads for you. Outcome is that um, for a one, when you pray with beads... A repetitive prayer, what happens is it quiets your voices and you can never seek time with that inner stillness unless you've experienced it. And since the critic is constant, you probably haven't experienced that. So we suggest that you use beads prior to a time of contemplation or meditation, or that you use beads to teach your body and your head what it can feel like to have distance between you and the critic. The beads I would recommend for you because of your religious background are our beads here at Life in the Trinity Ministry. And... um, It's because Joe wrote, my husband Joe wrote the prayers, and they're based on the Galatians reading of the fruits of the Spirit, which I feel sure is consistent in terms of value and goodness with your religious tradition. And I think if you um, do that work with the beads, you'll find out that if you carry them in your pocket to... Uh, a time or uh, an experience that you think might be stressful, you can just 
from memory, feel them in your pocket and feel an awareness of a place inside of you that is more trusting and more calm and less critical and less judgmental of yourself. I get a lot of good feedback from all numbers about using prayer beads, but in particular from ones. All right. I'm very new to the Enneagram. I've been reading and listening to podcasts for a few months, and I think I'm a nine. I'd kill for peace, do almost anything to avoid cleaning out the basement, and I'm willing to let almost anybody decide where to eat. My mom died suddenly nearly five years ago, and since then I've been the caregiver for my dad. His health is failing, and at 89 is about to start hospice care. I'm aware that I never properly grieved my mom, and facing my dad's death is stirring up lots of uncomfortable feelings that I'd like to repress. I want to deal kindly with myself and at the same time be present for my dad. Can you give me advice? That's a lot for you to be um, living with and carrying as a nine. So um, on their behalf, thank you. And I would just say this. It's a decision to be affected by life. And none of us grieve well, I don't think, in the West. I'm working on some continued work around the value of grieving. I do think that for nine specifically, in order to grieve your dad's illness and death in a healthier way than you were able to when you lost your mom. You have to make the decision to be affected by what's happening. And it's tricky because it's about allowing. You can't make yourself be affected, but you are being affected. You just have to allow that into your consciousness. And you allow it for moments, not for a whole day, not for a whole afternoon. You just allow moments where you feel terribly sad or totally ineffective or impatient or tired. Like it's a, it's a whole range of feelings that affect your life when you're in the position that you're in. So make it a goal to start by allowing yourself to be affected by something once a day. And then just start a little journal of that one thing. It can be one sentence. And then do that for a while and see if you don't grow in your awareness of what you protect yourself from being affected by and your willingness to be affected. We all handle our inability to grieve differently. Your intuitive way of handling it as a nine is to be unaffected. Joel's a seven, and his intuitive way is to reframe things. I'm a two, and my way is to feel what other people feel, but that's not the same as grieving. And so what I'm suggesting for you is that you are mindful that for moments in a day, you're going to be fully present so that you can be fully affected. What I'm aware of, and sometimes you learn by thinking about what other numbers do, 
And what I'm aware of in Joel is when he has great concern about somebody in our family, rather than reframe that, he manages to be present to it by literally being present. He's in the room or as close to the room as he can get. And that's his way. And uh, you'll find your way. My way is to help and to do and to touch and hold. And that may not be your way. My mother died in my arms. I was holding her. And that might be very uncomfortable for you and for your dad and might not work for you. I'm just giving you ideas of different ways of staying present to life so that you can be affected by it. And just remember, it's your nature since you were a child to keep moving and be unaffected. So be nice to yourself as you try to start this practice. It's a tough time to do something new. Yeah, yeah. It, is. it is. That's why I'm saying be once good a day to yourself, yeah. and be good to yourself. Like, don't be affected all morning. Just in a moment that's poignant, think, I'm going to stop and let this in. And then I'm going to do the next thing I need to do. I believe I'm a type three, but I cannot relate to being a workaholic and I do not identify with my job since I gain no, no satisfaction from it. I leave the office as early as I feel is acceptable, but I often feel a sense of shame for not wanting to put in more time. How do threes respond when they're bored with their job? And am I really a three? I um, think a lot of people are bored with their jobs. I feel really blessed that I get to do work that I love. And I am very mindful that most people are going to work at a job they don't love and they need a paycheck. So having said that, let me say that I um, would suggest that you find something outside of work that you're wholehearted about and that you look to see if you're a goal setter there and if you feel like you want more and more of that. Because being a workaholic uh, doesn't necessarily have to do with your job. Some people work very hard at their golf game. Some people work very hard uh, at gardening. Um, so don't necessarily associate a three being a workaholic with your job, associate it with what you work at. And I think you'll feel more comfortable if that doesn't work for you, then you might not be a three. I've heard Suzanne say that, um, Enneagram threes with a wing four are, um, one of those personalities, I guess, that's more important to kind of pay attention to that wing. Um, and I'm curious what that is about. Thank you. And while we're here, if you want to talk about the couple of wings and numbers, yeah, let's go ahead and handle that question because okay. people are like, oh, wait, she also says it about yeah, nines with an eight wing. All right. Well, let's, let's talk first about threes with a four wing. If you're mindful of your four wing, then I'm sure that it's a bigger wing. You know, you can have a moderate wing or a big wing or a small wing. 
And the trick between a three with a four wing to manage is that threes set feelings aside and fours exacerbate feelings. So the people in your life and you are not accustomed to you being overcome with feelings. And when you lean into that big four wing and all of a sudden you're not able to set feelings aside or you're not setting them aside and you're with people who have no idea what to do with you when you're in this emotional space, which by the way, doesn't mean that you're emoting. It might be represented and more likely will be by melancholy. Like it's like there's just a cloud around you. That's what I'm talking about. And people in your life don't quite know what to do with that. So they call it depression. And you don't have practice at managing it. So it kind of overtakes you. And you tend to be much quieter and there's much less activity and you contribute less to a conversation And so you have to um, learn enough about fours to know how to manage your expression of that combination so that it doesn't throw people off and cause more discomfort. In terms of other numbers where there's great disparity between the number and the wing, making the wing very important... Nines with a big eight wing have a similar problem in that both eights and nines are concerned with injustice, like both threes and fours are in the feeling triad and both are dealing with feelings. And when eights and nines deal with injustice, they do it in two completely different ways. And so... Nines, you like to work behind the scenes. Uh, They like to work one-on-one. They like to do their private thing to address injustice. Eights address injustice in a bigger, more visible way. And they're usually verbal, and it usually happens in the present moment, in real time. And so the thing that we have to watch for in nines with a big eight wing is that when that eight wing leads and they speak out in public or they say something about injustice that they didn't think through the consequences of, they almost immediately wish that they hadn't and then they feel like they have to circle back and fix all of that and go back to quietly addressing injustice or something that they disagree with in their own non-presumptive way. Hi, Suzanne. This is Jane Detweiler from Grand Rapids, Michigan. I'm a two wing three, and I was wondering if you have any thoughts on which pairs of Enneagram numbers are good romantic matches. Thanks so much. Bye. This question gets asked more than people would think. Yes, it does. And people don't like my answer more than you would think. (laughs) The trick to healthy relationships is being healthy. It doesn't have anything to do with your Enneagram number. Any two numbers who are working at being healthy and who are healthy can build a really good relationship with one another. There is one caveat, 
and that is fours with fours. And it has to do with the fact that fours tend in relationships that matter to push you away and then pull you back in and push you away and then they get afraid that you don't know how much they love you so they pull you back in and then they think they can't stand to lose you so they push you away. And in that circumstance, fours have to be able to manage through or somehow orchestrate pushing and pulling. And when they can't do it, that is a problem that generally requires outside help. But for other numbers, work on being healthy. And if you're healthy, you can build a relationship with anybody else who's working on being healthy. Mm -hmm. That's probably disappointing. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, what's a magazine that you know, would love to have that article from?